How many of you are familiar with Charlie Chaplin? Do you know who Charlie Chaplin is? There is a well-known fact about Charlie Chaplin that Charlie Chaplin once entered a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. You would think that entering a look-alike contest for yourself would be in the bag, don't you think? That if someone had a picture of you or they knew what you looked like, then entering a look-alike contest, uh, a look-alike uh, competition for yourself, you would be guaranteed the win because nobody can look more like you than you. The funny thing is, though, that Charlie Chaplin, in entering this contest, contest ended up coming in third. Um, that he did not actually win. Um, there have been various. Uh, reasons submitted maybe for the reason that Charlie did not win. One of them being that Charlie had exceedingly bright blue eyes and the contest was done via photos. And at that time, black and white, the, the only photos were in black and white. So submitting a picture of himself, nobody could see that his eyes were actually that bright blue. So people who knew who Charlie Chaplin was, knew who Charlie Chaplin didn't recognize him when they actually saw him. That they thought that they had a clue of who he was, but then when they were presented with the actual real deal, they missed the boat completely. You know, we talk about, rightfully so, at this church, we talk about Jesus a lot. We ought to be talking about Jesus a lot. But when we talk about Jesus Christ, when we mention Jesus in, in conversation, do we actually really have in our head all the time who it is that we're talking about when we talk about Jesus Christ? That throughout history, people have thought different things about Jesus. They, some people have thought that Jesus was a good teacher. Some people have thought that Jesus was uh, crazy. But we know, now notice I say we didn't think, we don't just believe, we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That He wasn't a great teacher, but He was more than that. He's a king, but he's more than just a king. He's a prophet, but he's more than just a prophet. He's a priest, but he's more than just a priest. That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord. So I want us to talk about today what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. So if you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 today. And then the sermon's going to be a little bit different because we're not going to necessarily go through all of these verses like we normally do. We're going to read them. We're going to talk about what's happening in them. And then we're going to zoom in on one word. We're going to zoom in on the word Christ. And we're going to talk about what Christ means and what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. So if you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for for your word. Thank you so much that that confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has moved in us to to confirm that truth in, in most of our hearts here today. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who is still up in the air about whether or not they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, dear Lord, that the Holy Spirit, you would move on them and you would bring them to that knowledge of you today in a saving way. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, in, in prayer time before Sunday school this morning, if, if you don't know that uh, there is a prayer time that meets at 925 every Sunday morning before Sunday school starts. All of you are invited. Uh, it's been joked. Some, some person tells me that's the secret club that meets on Sunday mornings. It's not a secret club. Any of you are welcome to come. It's at 925. We meet down in the Sunday school wing. And I was talking with some of our uh, folks that were there for prayer time this morning. And I said, you know, we're a pretty traditional old-fashioned church, right? Just in general. Uh, well, there ain't nothing more traditional than this sermon series we're going through. And a lot of times in the Baptist church, we forget that you know Christianity didn't start in the 1500s with the Reformation. That there's a lot of Christian history that happened way farther back from that. And the Apostles' Creed that we've been going through dates in its earliest form back to around 140 A.D., But the Apostles' Creed has a bigger, more expansive brother called the Nicene Creed that's very similar. And one of my forebears in the church, in the pastorate, a man named Cyril, who was pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the the mid-4th century, he was actually doing exactly what I'm doing today. And he was preaching a series of sermons through this creed. And this is what he had to say about this line. They who have been taught to believe in in one God, the Father Almighty, also to believe in His only begotten Son. For he that denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. I am the door, saith Jesus. No one cometh unto the Father but through Me. For if you deny the door, the knowledge concerning the Father is shut off from you. No man knoweth the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son shall reveal Him. For if you deny Him who reveals, you remain in ignorance." There is a sentence in the gospel saying, He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. For the Father has indignation when the only begotten Son is set at naught. It's grievous to a king that merely his soldiers should be dishonored. And when one of his nobler officers or friends is dishonored, then his anger is greatly increased. But if any should do despite to the king's only begotten Son himself, Who shall appease the Father's indignation on behalf of His only begotten Son? That we do not believe that Jesus was just a good teacher. We do not believe that Jesus was just a prophet, was just a priest, was just a king. We believe that Jesus is the greatest prophet, priest, and king. That He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Word made flesh dwelling among us, that that is what we believe about Jesus Christ at Stapleton Baptist Church, and that is what the church has believed about Jesus Christ since Jesus Christ founded the church on the cornerstone that is Himself. And the question that Jesus asks His disciples in Matthew chapter 16 is the question that every single human being 
gets asked, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Let's look through this text where Jesus asked this question and then talk about what Peter's answer means. First, Jesus comes in verse 13 to the region of Caesarea Philippi and He asks His disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now this is going to be a little bit of prologue before we get to your your items on your handout. But it's interesting that Jesus says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus already knows who He is. He's not trying to figure out. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm going on a trip to find myself? I've always thought that is the absolute silliest thing. And I saw a shirt picking on it one time that says, I've, I've gone on a journey to find myself. If I get back before I find me, would you call me and let me know? Uh, but Jesus already knows who he is. He doesn't need anybody to help him figure that out. And he inserts the answer in the question. He says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus referred to Himself as the Son of Man more than He referred to Himself as any other title. That's a weird title, isn't it? You know, do you walk around... I mean, you might walk around saying, I am, for me, I am the Son of Wanda. That's not how I introduce myself, but it is true. But Jesus, His Father, we all know, He's the only begotten Son of God. Did He walk around calling Himself the Son of God? No. Now, that doesn't mean He's not. But why did he choose the title Son of Man to call himself more than any other title? In fact, he called himself the Son of Man 32 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 26 times in Luke, and 10 times in John. He was obviously trying to make a point. So what is the Son of Man? The the Baker Evangelical uh, Encyclopedia of the Bible says the background of the term Son of Man is to be found in the Old Testament. Hmm. The specific source of the term is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is not on your handout, but I will read this to you. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It's going to sound like Revelation, by the way. I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven... He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus steps up and says, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus is saying, Hey, You remember in Daniel when you read of this Son of Man that is given an everlasting kingdom whose whose name everyone is going to bow and that everyone is going to serve? That's who I am. I am the Son of Man. Jesus repeatedly quoted parts of this text in teaching about His second coming. Here are just five in the book of Matthew. Matthew 16, 27, 19, 28... 24-30, 25-31, and 26-64. He quotes this passage from Daniel five times in the book of Matthew. And I know some of you will like to take notes and go back and look at this later. If that was too fast for you, then I I got a lot today. I want you to come ask me afterward. I'll be glad to give you those references so you can go look and see Jesus quoting Daniel himself. Clearly, 
This is the encyclopedia. Clearly, Jesus understood this passage as a prophetic portrayal of his own person, his incarnation, ascension, and inheritance of the kingdom of God. Jesus identified himself as this eternal glorified son of man. He already knows who he is. He wants to know if anybody else does. So the disciples respond. They say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Even if the general crowds didn't understand why Jesus kept referring to himself as the Son of Man, never mind the fact that he used it more than any other term, at some point you would think someone would go to their rabbi and say, hey, where's this from? Why, who is the Son of Man? Why does he keep calling himself this? They seem to have figured out, even if they didn't know who he was, that there was something Old Testamenty about this guy. You know, there was something that that had the scent of the Old Testament prophets about this man. That's that's what a lot of them thought about him. That when you look at their description of who these people say they think Jesus might be, his disciples say some of them think that you're Elijah, some of them think you're John the Baptist, some of them think you're Jeremiah or just another one of the prophets. They might not have known, the general crowds might not have known who exactly he was, but they knew that there was something divine about him. That there was some, he had some sort of relationship with God that they didn't have. And the closest thing they could come up with was one of the prophets. Now, all of these men listed were Old Testament prophets with the exception of John the Baptist. And by the way, that's a distinction that only we would make. There was, in their eyes, there was no difference between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet. Because for them, there wasn't a New Testament yet. A prophet was just a prophet. So they, they, they named these highly respected, revered men. They were by no means insulting descriptions, but they weren't good enough. They didn't quite get there. And Jesus says to them in response to this answer, but who do you say that I am? Now, you've got a Bible in, in English, but that's not the language the Bible was originally written in. It was orig- the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And in Greek, there was a language tool that we don't see in English. It's, they emphasize things in a different way. When a Greek author wanted to emphasize something, he would take that word and shift it to the beginning of the sentence. So if you were to read this sentence in Greek with the emphasis, it would come out more like this. You, who do you say that I am? Jesus says, I know what all these other people are saying, but you're my disciples. You walk around with me day in and day out. I want to know who you believe that I am. I want your answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, we don't think of it this way, but Peter goes back into the Old Testament again to give his answer. By saying, you are the Christ The son of the living God. And Jesus confirms this and tells him he's correct. Blessed are you, Simon Bar, that means son, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That this is a divine revelation to you, Peter, that you have recognized that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Christ was not Jesus's last name, by the way. That when you hear Jesus Christ, that's not like 
Josh Mosley. It's not like Christ was Jesus' last name. Christ was a title. It had a very specific meaning. And you probably know that meaning. Have you ever heard of something being christened? Yet when a ship goes off and it sails the first time, the ship is christened or something like that. What happens? It, Christ means anointed, commissioned for a specific purpose. And there were little, little C Christs all throughout the Old Testament. Types of a future coming big C Christ. Little folks who were anointed in smaller ways. You can probably think of some of them throughout the Old Testament. There were different types of people who were anointed, who were christened, if you want to use the Greek word. That's where we get the term Christ, is it's the Greek word for anointed, the anointed one. So think of it this way. Can you think of anyone maybe in the book of Exodus who was anointed? How about Aaron, the high priest? If you know your Bible, then you will know that there was, uh, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system had priests. And you didn't just decide one day that you were going to be a priest. You had to be a member of a specific tribe. And there were certain regulations you had to follow. And at the beginning of your service, the priest would be anointed with a specific oil that, that he would be marked as one who was set aside for the priestly service. So priests were christened. They were anointed. What about kings? Kings in the Old Testament were anointed, weren't they? Think about, think about Samuel anointing Saul. Think about King David being anointed. That that was a symbol that God had put His Spirit upon you and that you were going to lead His people. So kings were anointed. And interestingly enough, there is one prophet in the Old Testament who was anointed. And that was Elisha. He was anointed in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. That's the only instance in the Old Testament of a prophet being anointed. So who gets christened? Who gets anointed? Prophets, priests, and kings. Thank you, Miss Joyce, for helping me by playing Praise Him, Praise Him, where we sing, Hail Him, Hail Him, Prophet and Priest and King. That there's a reason those words are in that hymn because they are tied intimately to the concept of Christ. These were the offices that were anointed. So are we saying that Jesus is just another run-of-the-mill anointed prophet, priest, or king? Absolutely not. That all of these little prophets, priests, and kings were pointing forward to the great Christ that was coming one day. They were all pictures to get you ready to look for Jesus. And that's what Peter said when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So for the rest of this morning, I want us to look at those anointed offices and see how Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. How He fulfills all of these offices. So first I want us to see that Christ is superior to all other appointed prophets. What is a prophet? Put succinctly, a prophet speaks for God. The words of the Old Testament prophet carried authority specifically because they were not the prophet's words. They were God's words that came out of the prophet's mouth. And when the prophet arrived, they immediately demanded the people's attention 
by virtue of his or her connection with God. Think of it if you want a picture of how this worked. Think of it now. I I don't call myself a prophet in the Old Testament vein. I'm not standing in front of you and saying the words coming out of my mouth are the exact words inspired by God. I can misspeak. In the Old Testament, when the, a prophet did not ever misspeak when he was speaking for God, he would say, "Thus says the Lord." My authority as a pastor does not come from my position as a pastor. You understand the like I. I can't tell, I can't be like, I told you so, I'm the pastor. I can't do that. Do you know when my words have the authority of God behind them? When they come out of here. When I explain to you what this means and I stick to what Scripture says, it's not my authority that I wield as a pastor. That I am telling you what God says and His Word has authority. That's the way the prophets in the Old Testament worked. When God spoke through the prophet, it wasn't the prophet's authority, it was God's. Also from from the uh, Baker Encyclopedia, in Jewish thought, the most vivid and formative religious happenings found their focus in the call and ministry of a prophet through whom God made known His Word and Himself to His people. Think about the Old Testament All of the craziest stuff in the Old Testament that happens, happens when there's a prophet on the scene. Think of Elijah, the calling down of fire from heaven, or the the axe head floating, or Moses was a prophet. Think of the things that happened under Moses. I mean, good Lord. As long as you... Jonah, hello? Getting swallowed by a giant fish and, and going and preaching to Nineveh. I mean... Crazy stuff happens when a prophet speaks. Why? Because when a prophet speaks, God speaks. Nothing is off the table when God speaks. He can do anything. In their appraisal of Jesus, the people were in fact more correct than they knew. For in Him, God had in reality visited them. And He, though so much more than a prophet, was in fact the crown and climax of the prophetic order predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. In Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, Moses says this, or rather God says through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And then in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 uh, through 24. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That... Moses prophesied back then, one day I'm going to send a prophet to you that is going to, or God's going to send to you a prophet that is going to be like me. That God is going to speak through this prophet. And if you listen to this prophet, 
then God will receive you. He will tell you how you're going to be saved. He will tell you how you can follow Him. He will tell you how you can have a relationship with Him. If you listen to Him, this will occur. You will be safe. You will be together with God. But if you don't listen to Him, then you will be forever utterly cut off from God and from His people. That Jesus, as that great prophet, as that great um, last prophet, the one that God said was coming, He is above and over and beyond anyone else who would ever call Himself a prophet. So how do we apply this? Hebrews chapter 1 One and two says God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. How do we apply this? How do we apply this to ourselves? Let me tell you how to apply this staple to Baptist church. How many of you want to hear from God? Anybody want to hear from God? Anybody at all? If you want to hear from God, hear Christ. Don't go off and try and find you another preacher or another teacher. Look for someone who's going to tell you this is what Jesus has said. Do you want to see God? See Christ. I'm sorry, y'all. I did not know that this was going to make this sound. If you want to see God, see Christ. If you want to hear God, hear Christ. Do you want to obey God? Do any of you want to obey God? Obey Christ. If you don't obey Christ, you're not obeying God. That you have to obey Christ if you want to obey God. Jesus is superior to all other anointed prophets. Jesus is superior to all other anointed priests. Let me talk to you about priests. That if you wanted to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be of a certain particular tribe. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. If you weren't of the tribe of Levi then you could not be a priest. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is a new order of priest. That There were priests that had to go into the temple, that had to do certain various things, that there was no way for you to say, you know what, I feel like going directly to God today. Do you see what we did at the beginning of this worship service? That we went and we said, you know what, we're going to pray before we go any farther in this worship service. And we bowed our heads and we went to God, right? We bowed our heads and we went to God and we said, God, please bless this church. Bless this worship service. Help us to do what you have called us to do today. Do you know in the Old Testament... You could not have done that. You couldn't go directly to God. You had to have someone go in before you. This is why in this Baptist church, you refer to me, what is my position? I'm pastor. 
None of you have ever referred to me as Priest Mosley. Father Mosley. And I don't want you to. Because every Christian in the world has a priest. We have someone who goes between us and God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these Old Testament prophets, or all of these Old Testament priests, do you know that they would go in and they would fulfill their ministry for their lifetime and then they would die? And another priest would come after them. And they would, for their lifetime, they would fulfill their ministry. And they would die. And this would go on, and it 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 would go on. And it continued on all the way until the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That there was a never-ending stream of priests. There was always another priest. He always had to take the place of the person who came behind him. And when the priest went in, do you know why the priests would die? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. All you have to do right now, and I don't say this lightly. I don't say this to poke fun. Have you turned on your TV lately and seen that priests are not perfect? And we're not going to talk about the details. I won't talk about that in public. But just because you call yourself a priest doesn't mean that you're sinless. That you're weak, you're frail, that you're a human being who sins just like the rest of us. That a priest is not magically, just by virtue of being called a priest, sinless. That's a totally separate qualification. These priests had weakness, just like anyone who calls themselves a priest today has weakness. And as a result, the wages of sin is what, Stapleton Baptist Church? Death. The wages of sin is death. And every priest knew that. What did priests do? Priests daily received the sacrifices. They would go in at the beginning of the day clothed in white, a symbol of their purity before God. But by the end of the day, their clothes weren't white anymore. Why? Because their adherents of ancient Judaism would bring the sacrifices and the priest would lay his hands on the sacrifices, symbolically saying, I'm laying the sins of the person who brought the sacrifice on you, and he would slay the animal. By the end of the day, the priest would be covered in blood. The priest knew that the wages of sin was death. And you know what? He wasn't exempt. The priest had his own sin. Which meant he died too. But, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and 27. Although there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save the uttermost. Those who come to God through him since He always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. 
who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. That every other priest you go to, do you know why I as a Baptist am never going to sit in a box and tell another man about my sin so that he can pronounce absolution over me? Because that man has sin of his own. That man can't forgive sin because he's not God. Do you remember the, 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 the crazy but true story of Jesus in the house teaching and these four friends know that Jesus is in there and they've got their lame buddy who can't walk and they say, man, we're going to get him to Jesus. And so they pick him up and they take him to the roof and they pull the roof off the building and they lower him down. And when Jesus sees this man, the first thing he says is not, oh, get up and walk. He looks at this man and says, child, thy sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious fuddy-duddies look at Jesus and say, in their mind, in their heart now, who is this man that claims he can forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. They didn't know it, but they were right. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can look at you and say, your sins are blotted out. They're forgiven. They're gone. They're separate from you. They're, they're separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Only God can do that. So Jesus looks down at this man on the ground and says, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say I forgive your sin or is it easier to say get up and walk? It's easier to say your sin's forgiven because nobody can see that. But it's not easy to say get up and walk because everybody knows whether or not you've got that authority. So Jesus says, just so you know that I have the authority to forgive sin, get up and walk. And the man did. Jesus Christ is the only priest that you can go to that has the authority to forgive your sin. He is the only one that can go before his father and say, they're one of mine. They're forgiven. They belong to me. He's the only one that can do that. So how do we apply this? Have you ever heard somebody say this? Well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. You ever heard somebody say that? Well, so I'm, I'm a, I consider myself a spiritual person, but I'm just not really into religion. I've heard countless people say that. That they recognize that there's something spiritual about them. That they recognize that there's more than just their body. But they don't want to come to Jesus. Here's the problem, y'all. You can't go to God on your own. Your sin keeps you from going to Him. You need somebody to go for you. And the only one qualified to do that is Jesus. If you haven't come to Jesus... You can't go to God. So Jesus Christ is superior to every other anointed priest. He's superior to every other anointed prophet. He's superior to every other anointed priest. And He is superior to every other anointed king. Now prophets we don't have walking around. You know. Priests in this part of the country we don't really have walking around. There are some people who call themselves priests here. We don't really have folks, a lot of them walking around calling themselves that. <clears throat> we certainly don't have any kings walking around. But we really kind of don't need anybody to explain to us what a king is. 
We get the concept of king, but we as Americans struggle with it because none of us have ever lived under a king. Our founding fathers knew what a king was like, which is why they didn't want one. They knew that a king, whatever kind of person he was, his character was either going to be really good for the people he ruled or really bad. Because the point of being a king is that you're not elected. You just are. And if you're good, man, your people are going to love you because life's going to be great. But if you're bad, your people can't do anything because you're the king. They didn't like investing that much power in one person. Why? Because they recognized the simple truth, the simple biblical truth, that people are evil. At our core, at our heart, any, does anybody want to tell me that you can look in the mirror and you know I am a truly 100% good person? Anybody want to do that? No, nobody wants to do that because we all know it's not true. We all know that we're not perfectly good people. And all being in charge does, if you've ever been in leadership, you can confirm this truth. All being in charge does is magnify your flaws. That's all it does. Is that when you're not in charge, folks might know. For me, example, I am not a good administrator. I'm a big picture person. I'm not a details person. If I'm just a regular just church member just sitting in the pew, that, that deficiency in administrating might not be all that apparent. But when you step into a leadership position, I'm so glad I'm married to an accountant who's good at details. If I didn't have my wife to support me, y'all, I wouldn't know which direction my head was screwed on. I need help there for that. A king's deficiencies are magnified. So they didn't want a king. So we elected a president constitutionally. And this was a new concept. They didn't know what to call George Washington. Have you ever done any reading about what they called George Washington, what they tried to? They eventually settled on Mr. President. But some of the names that they were going to call him were like His Most Excellent Benevolent Majesty. Um, Your Majesty. Can you imagine referring to our president as your majesty, his majesty, his highness, the president was one of them. That they legitimately were trying to figure out what to call their ruler because they didn't have a king. They didn't know what to do. So they finally settled on Mr. President because George Washington didn't want. He's like, if you call me his majesty, it's going to turn into a king and I'm not a king. But scripturally, they knew very well what a king was. A king is someone with absolute, unquestioning authority. That the king can actually tell someone to do something. And when they say, why? There isn't any congressional oversight. There is no committee to watch him. His reason for doing so can be, because I said so. And nobody can stop him because he's the king. Do you know that kings were anointed? That Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. 
Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 says, looking forward to Jesus, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, in Hebrew, there are two words for Lord. There's the word Adonai, which I know y'all have heard probably in music before. That's just a fancy way of saying sir. Have any of you ever looked at your Bible and seen the word Lord in all capitals? You ever seen that? The reason you see that is because it was Jewish tradition when you saw the name Yahweh in the text. That was God's proper name that he revealed himself by. And his name was so holy and so pure that they didn't want to say it with unclean lips. So when they came across it, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai, Lord. In Scripture, if you ever saw Adonai by itself spelled out, that just meant Lord, Sir, Captain. But if you saw Yahweh, you would say Adonai out of respect. When Jeremiah says the name of this king will be the Lord, our righteousness, it doesn't say Adonai. It doesn't say Sir. It says Yahweh, our righteousness. Jeremiah prophesied that one day there would be a king who would somehow come from the lineage of David, but would also be Yahweh, the eternal God, king of the universe, the one who made the universe, the one who made you and me and everything else that is. That one day a king was going to come who was the God of the universe. And we saw that happen in the first chapters of the Gospels when an angel comes to Mary and says, Hail, highly favored of the Lord. He's with you. You will conceive and you will bear a child. He will be conceived of the Holy Spirit and His name will be Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. That Jesus Christ Himself is the anointed King but not just the earthly, worldly anointed King. He is the eternal God. That there is no other King that can claim that. So how do we apply this? Let me tell you what you do. Any of y'all ever watched those uh, old, maybe King Arthur movies? When the king comes in, what does everybody do? They either stand up or they kneel. A king is to be respected. A king is to be loved. A prophet is to be heard. A priest is to be trusted. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because at Stapleton Baptist Church, here's what we believe about Jesus. That He is the Christ, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord, our Yahweh, our Master. His word is law, and His love is our life. Apart from Him, there is no life, there is no hope. And if you are here today and you don't know Him, we want to offer you that opportunity. That you can come to the great high priest. You can hear God speak through the ultimate prophet, His Son. You can bow before the one true King, the Son of the living God. And you can find life in Him. And security and safety in Him for all eternity. Miss Joyce and Miss Abby are going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And I want to invite you, if you don't know the true prophet, priest, and King, the Lord Jesus Christ... I want to invite you to come up here and talk to me about that. And if you don't know the priest, you can't go to God. 
If you don't know the prophet, you've never heard from him. If you don't know the king, then you're a rebel. Come forward and talk to me. I would love to talk to you about how you can know Jesus. If walking forward scares you, then you can fill out the, the guest card on the side of your bulletin. There's nothing wrong with that. I'll follow up with you. You can catch me at the back before we leave and say, Pastor, I was about to leave, but I need to know the king. Take me to the king. I'll be glad to talk to you about that. Stapleton, if you are a believer, I, I want to encourage you to pray for those people who need to meet the king. Pray right now. Pray during the whole invitation. And if you need to come, you come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. Lord, we love you for coming for us, for being that. The Lord our righteousness, Jesus himself. I pray for those in here today, Lord, who have never bowed beneath you, who have no priest, who have no prophet to tell them the way. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict them and draw them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and turn to page 312. So, and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling.